0: What is the starting point? My name's Jim, and I'm a very queasy member of Allen. Ah, <laughs> oh, first time I was asked to speak at a convention, what came out of my mouth was, "My name's Jim, and I'm a petrified Allen of Membernon." <laughs> so so far. My name came out okay, and so in closing, I would <laughs> to be true to the spirit of this convention, I am going to unmask and reveal my true self, and start this talk with a few minutes of whining. I hate speaking. <laughs> Harpo has been my nickname all my life, and um, not once have I woke up in the morning and thought, I want to drive across country, stand in front of a group of people I've never seen before, and talk about things I've spent half my life trying to forget. (laughs) But here I am. Um, It's really hard. Tell them my story because it's impossible to make some sort of a coherent narrative from progressive insanity. But I'm going to give this my best try. I um, was born in St. Louis, and there was alcoholism on both sides of the family. My mom's dad, my grandpa, I only saw the man one time. And apparently, he was a pretty bad alcoholic, and mom wanted to keep him away from us kids. Uh, she did let him see us once. And my only memory of the man is him coming out the backyard, or coming out the back door when I was playing in the backyard, um, taking the lid off a garbage can, taking a bottle, taking a drink of it, and then hiding the bottle back in the garbage can. And that's my only memory of my grandpa on my mom's side. It was suspected later that he was running an informal trade in pharmaceuticals. He was a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> my grandpa on my dad's side is the guy who was responsible for getting me drunk for the first time. And I do not remember this. But uh, the story went that I was like two or three in my playpen, and uh, Grandpa kept on giving me hits of his beer until I was so drunk I couldn't even stand up holding on to the rails anymore. And like I said, I don't remember that, but the hangover must have been horrendous because I didn't take another drink for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) My perception... um, of family get-togethers is is this. And I want to qualify this because my perceptions do not always have 100% to do with reality. Because my perceptions are always shaded by what my prevailing attitude is. But my perception of family get-togethers was there was always drinking. The relatives would get drunk and a little bit sloppy have temper flare-ups, break things, and make passes at each other's wives. And even as a little guy, I was not a fan of, of family get-togethers. So what I decided to do was to just say, the heck with family, I'm going to make my friends my family. And that's what I ended up doing. And um, there was always drinking. They a little drunk, a little bit sloppy, and have temper flare-ups and break things and make passes at each other's wives. It, it, talk about deja vu. You know. But the whole friend thing didn't start out like that. Um, growing up, this may shock a lot of you, but um, I turned out to be a little hippie. <laughs> and growing up in the 60s, especially in the Midwest, as a skinny little hippie was not fun all the time. I got beat up and had beer bottles and beer cans thrown at me from cars, Uh, got chased, and even got shot at for no other reason than I was a skinny little hippie. So for me, growing up, the world was a brutal, hostile place. But there was one little island of safety And that was that group of friends that I had where there was some acceptance and some peace. And there wasn't any acceptance and peace at school. There wasn't any at home. And there wasn't any on the streets. But I had those friends where I had that. The bad thing was that as we got older and the disease started taking a hold of us, it started feeling like that small island of safety, that group of friends of mine, was turning out to be more and more like the world. There'd be more and more anger and violence and fights and threats of suicide and even death. And what it felt like to me was that little island of safety that I would not have been able to survive the world without. It felt like that little island started sinking. And what it felt like to me was if it did sink, I was going to be floating all by myself in a sea of brutality. And that was my prevailing attitude at the time and what I felt was sheer panic. One of my friends was having a horrible, horrible time with um, his depression and his alcoholism. And his wife used to call me from work and say, he's drunk in the house, he's got a gun, he said he's gonna shoot himself, will you go over there? So I would hop in my car and race down the highway, get to his house and bang on the door and there'd be no answer. And I wouldn't know if he was dead or alive until she came and unlocked the door and we would find him passed out on the floor. And I don't know how many times this happened, uh, but it happened a lot. And I remember racing down the highway one time when this thought popped in my head that if I died in a car wreck on the way over to help him, I know the guilt would be so bad that he would get sober. (laughs) (laughs) What I know now is that... um, if that would have happened, it probably would have pulled out all the stops in his drinking, and it probably could have even killed him with the guilt. So one day, my friend's wife called me, and instead of saying he's got a gun, he's going to shoot himself, what she said was, I've been going to this group called al Would you like to go? And I said, well, absolutely, because somebody's got to get him sober. <laughs> So on February 17th, 1987, I began my Al-Anon journey and to quote my favorite non-conference approved source, the Grateful Dead, (laughs) what a long strange trip it's been. (laughs) I went to my first Al-Anon meeting uh, at St. Gregory's Church in St. Louis and um, walked down the basement stairs with uh, my friend's wife, found a chair, sat down, looked around, and I was surrounded by 40-odd women of varying ages, and I was the only guy. (laughs) When I hear people say, when I went to my first meeting, it felt like I came home, and I said, well, good for you, because that's not the way I felt. (laughs) And as the meeting started, I became more and more horrified because this wasn't a strategy meeting on how to get the alcoholics sober. This was a self-help group. (laughs) And when it came my turn to talk, I told those ladies, this is a self-help group, like they didn't know. (laughs) And what they said to me was, smile, keep coming back. (laughs) Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Okay. I had lost about 20 pounds. Um, I was dizzy all the time, holding on to the chair in the meeting so I wouldn't pitch over. My life was falling apart. I was fighting off compulsions to drive off of bridges, but I was insulted that somebody said I should keep coming to a self-help group. <laughs> but I did. Partly because somebody had to do something to get the alcoholic sober. Partly because I thought there had to be something more to Al-Anon than this. That maybe they had a secret pamphlet on how to get the alcoholic sober. But I just wasn't initiated yet. But mainly I just kept coming back because I just plain didn't know what to do. So I was going to the meetings, and I would hear things like, I saw the most beautiful sunset today. And I thought, great a program that's going to teach me to critique sunsets. This is going to help a lot. And I got a smile and it keep coming back. They said, is um, your glass half full or half empty? And I said, I don't even have a stinking glass. (laughs) Smile, keep coming back. And they told me about a gratitude list. And I said, fine. If anything good should ever happen to me, I'll jot it down and see if that helps. Smile, keep coming back. This went on for months. And uh, all of a sudden, these 40-odd ladies came up with something new that I'd never heard of before. Something called the 12 Steps Sponsorship. Something like that. And um, I decided to get a sponsor and work the steps and go to step meetings, partly because somebody had to do something to get the alcoholic sober. Partly I thought if you worked the steps, you would receive the sacred pamphlet, (laughs) but mainly because I just plain didn't know what else to do. You know, they call them steps. But when I looked at them the first time, they didn't look like steps to me. They looked like walls. You know, there might have been a plateau up there somewhere, but I sure couldn't see it at the time. And step one was the very first wall. And I remember reading. My life was unmanageable and that I was powerless. And it really felt to me like it said, that Jim's not smart enough and not not good enough. And you know, powerless, yeah, unmanageable, that just reinforced. Jim's not smart enough and Jim's not good enough. And when I think back then about the level of self-esteem that I had, it really felt like if I would have admitted those things, powerless and my life unmanageable what it would have done was rip away the last shred of self-esteem away that I had. And I tried guilting the alcoholic sober, and that didn't work. And I tried talking rationally, and that worked even less. (laughs) But the hardest thing to let go of was, they would get sober if I just loved them enough. And when that didn't happen what it felt like to me was, well, then Jim's love isn't good enough either. And when I realized that the love that I felt for that group of friends that I was even willing to die for, um, that that love I felt for them was turning into anger and was turning into resentments and was even turning into hate, that's what tore away the last shred of self-esteem away I it. And I was able to admit then that I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. So miracle of miracles, I scaled step one <laughs> and stood on the plateau and looked up and here's wall number two. Came to believe. Um, I did not think that I'd be able to do anything like come to believe. Um, This disease, I think, if you beat your head long enough against the wall, it'll let you see that it's a power greater than you that's going to hurt you. And I think if you beat your head longer than that, the disease will let you see that your life's unmanageable. But this disease fought me tooth and nail before I could come to believe that there was a power greater than me that was going to help. At that time, my prevailing attitude was, if there was a power greater than me, it wasn't going to be God. Um, And i heard people say, you can make anything you want your higher power. You can make a doorknob your higher power. And I've heard people in meetings say, well, that's kind of a silly idea. And I think that too sometimes until I remember back then that even a doorknob was more than it felt like I had at the time. And I actually thought about making Santa Claus my higher power. (laughs) I swear this is true because with him when you screwed up, you only got the shaft one day out of the year instead of all 365. (laughs) And I said that in the meeting and I got a smile and it keep coming back. (laughs) Ah. And they also told me that you could make the group your higher power. And that's what I ended up doing. I made 40 odd ladies of varying ages who met in the basement of a church and didn't have last names, I made them my higher power. And it was right about that time that they announced they were going to have a group conscious meeting the next week. And I thought, well, that's it. Made these 40 women my higher power, and they're getting ready to vote to kick the long hair out. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my prevailing attitude at the time. Um, and uh, I didn't know if I should go to the meeting or not, but I went to the meeting and sweated it out. And it, they had the group conscious, and it was about sending five bucks to the World Service Center <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and when I told those ladies that I really thought that they were getting ready to kick Jim out, what I got was hysterical laughter, and it keep coming back. So I scaled wall two and uh, stood on the plateau and looked up, and here was the biggest wall of all, and that was step three. When I read step three, it said, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the wrath of God as I understood it. (laughs) And that's not what it said, but that's sure what it felt like it said when um we had say the serenity prayer, I didn't say, "God grant the serenity." you know I just said, "Grant me the serenity." And I don't know who I was talking to, but I was probably talking to somebody. And when we said the Lord's Prayer, At the end of the meeting, we'd all stand up and join hands, and they'd say it, and I'd keep my mouth shut. And I think those 40-odd ladies noticed that, because it was right at that time that they asked me to speak at the meeting for the very first time. And naturally, I panicked and freaked out, because my name is Harpo, and I hate speaking in front of people. But I did. And I don't remember anything that I said, but I'm absolutely certain it was spiritually enlightening. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end of the meeting, we all stood up and we all held hands. And the chairperson turned to me and said these words, Jim, would you lead us in the Lord's Prayer? (laughs) Oh my God. I was so freaked out about what I was going to say in front of these ladies that I completely forgot about the Lord's Prayer. And we're standing there, and we're holding hands, and these 40-odd ladies are looking at me, and what came out was, Ah! Ah! Our Father! And I said the our Father for the very first time. And I was... Amazed that I wasn't struck by lightning. (laughs) And I was absolutely certain I was going to receive the sacred pamphlet after that. (laughs) Nope. What I got was wall four. Uh. (laughs) Best thing I could tell you about my first four steps was that I wrote it in code in case anybody should find it and neglected to put paranoia down as a defective character. (laughs) Uh, I had a real hard time with step four, and I think the main reason was because of that word moral. And so I decided to look it up in the dictionary because I felt stuck. And what I expected to find was a definition of why Jim was gonna burn forever in an eternal lake of fire. And that was my prevailing attitude at the time. So I looked it up, and that's not what I got. You know, what I got was the word moral comes from a Latin word that means something more like mood, like morale. And I thought, mood, okay, this is leading somewhere. So I looked up the word mood. And the definition was, quote, a prevailing attitude, unquote. Prevailing attitude. That's something i would had my whole life. And when I finally did my four step and made a searching and fearless inventory of what my prevailing attitude was, I was finally standing face to face with what the problem really was all the time. I wrote down things in my fourth step that I would never, ever, 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 ever tell anybody. And what does the next step say? You tell somebody. And I asked those ladies if it ever occurred to any of them that whoever came up with these steps had a twisted sense of humor. And I got a smile and I keep coming back. Step five was terrifying. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons they have step three before step four and step five, because you got to come to believe, and you got to turn your will and your life over to something that's going to accept you just as you are. And when the step says admitted to God, yourself next... You admit it to yourself because I had I'm one of the few people that had trust issues in <laughs> al But I'll tell you what I had more of and that was shame issues. And if the truth be told I could trust you a hundred percent and yet I wouldn't reveal me because of the shame. Um those 40-odd ladies said, you're only as sick as the secret you keep. And I said, well, then I'm terminal. (laughs) (laughs) But when I admitted those defects to God and to myself, that's when I finally had the courage to do my fifth step with my sponsor, who was also one of the few people who had trust issues. (laughs) He said that when he did his first fifth step, What he wanted to do was fly to Tibet, find a monk on the top of a mountain that didn't speak English and do his fifth step with him. And that is exactly how it felt to me. But when I finally did that fifth step, it was just like I had taken a step back towards the human race, you know? And it wasn't that... Amazingly short list of assets that made me feel like I was a part of a gun. What made me feel like I was part of the human race again was that enormous list of character defects. All those things that I tried to hide for so long. You know, no wonder I felt alone. Nobody in the world I thought knew me. And 90% of me was the defects of character. was the assets. So I did the fifth step and um, made it to wall six. (laughs) So far I've been told that um, I'm powerless, my life's unmanageable, uh, that I got a list of defects as long as my arm, that I got a prevailing attitude that causes me nothing but trouble. And I think it's really symptomatic of this disease that you can see all that. And when the next step asks you if you want to change, you go, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. I hear in meetings sometimes that if you're in enough pain, you'll change. I don't 100% believe that, because I had plenty of pain. But my old behaviors plus pain equaled nothing more than my old behaviors with a vengeance. (sighs) But when I took my old behaviors plus pain plus courage, that is finally what was able to make me change. You know, courage was the missing part of the equation, and it always had been. I had pain a long time. But it wasn't until I had courage that I was able to change. And I think that's why they called the book Courage to Change instead of Pain to Change. <laughs> I was somewhat ready to have God remove some of my defects of character. Um, I was never entirely ready to have God remove all those defects of character. Um, And I didn't really think those words entirely and all were ever going to come together. But it was kind of like this. If I was a house and my defects of character were termites, would I call the exterminator and say, uh, would you get rid of a couple of those termites? (laughs) (laughs) Would I call the exterminator and say, would you get rid of half the termites? No. I'd call the exterminator and say, get rid of all the termites, even the ones I can't see. And that's what my defects of character were. They were termites. They ate away at my soul. They ate away at my relationships. They ate away toward you know my perception of a god. It ate away at everything. So I was able then to become entirely ready to have them all removed, but in step seven, um, the thing is, you recognize them, and and then you got to ask, and I don't think there's any bigger gap between the steps than there is between six and seven, even though they sound so much alike. And I don't know about you guys, but I can be entirely ready to do something and still spend the rest of my life not doing it. But when I ask, humbly ask, like the step says, I'm making a little bit of a commitment. I'm taking a little bit of a step towards that goal. The problem with me was asking because I just plain didn't want to have to ask for help. What I had always wanted to be was tough as nails. And I said that at a meeting one time. And what I got back was, well, you know what a nail is, don't you? It's just a tall, thin thing with a big head. (laughs) Ah, 100% insulting, 100% true. And so uh, that put step seven in perspective for me, and uh, I humbly asked. So I made it to step eight, Um, and I believe they made step eight step eight because it sucks twice as bad as step four. (laughs) (laughs) And to me, that's true. Um, In step four, you're looking at your assets as well as your defects, And in step eight, what I was looking at was just the truth of the dark side of Jim. You know, the truth of the harm that I had caused people I love, people I didn't know. Just the harm of um, what I did. And I hear people sometimes say, should I put me on the top of the list? I really don't think it matters. You know, just make the list. And should I put God on top of the list? I don't think it matters, you know, just make the list. Should I put my kids, my husband, my wife on the top of the list? I don't think it matters, you know, just make the list. Because the stuff doesn't really say made a list in descending order of relevance, you know. (laughs) On the top of my grocery list, the very first thing on the list is probably what I need the most, but it's rarely the first thing in my shopping cart. so, And I managed to get my shopping done anyway. And for me, the bottom line was um, when I became willing to make amends to all those people, all those amends became equal anyway. So step nine, another case of I'm entirely willing and spending the rest of my life not doing it. <laughs> Making amends to those people. you know, All those people. And the problem there was uh, some of those people had harmed me. You know, the problem was all. But back when I was doing my seventh step, I asked God to remove the anger. And the answer I got was, no, you need anger to recognize injustice. And I said, okay, would you remove fear? And the answer came back, no, you need fear to know if you're safe or not. And I said, okay, guilt, would you take the guilt? And the answer came back, no, you need guilt to know if you're doing something wrong or not. And I said, okay, Pain. Will you take away the pain? And the answer was no, because you need pain sometimes to know what needs to be healed. And finally I said, would you take the sadness? And the answer was no, because you need that sometimes to see how important things are. And when I realized that all those people on that list of mine had the same fear, anger, guilt, pain, and sadness that I had, when I realized they all had what I had, I was then really willing and able to make amends to all those people because we all do suffer with the same humanness. And the problem wasn't those gifts at all. You know, the problem was what I was doing with them. So, I made it to step 10. And um, if anybody would have asked me which two steps would you never even want to touch again, I would say, piece of cake, step four and step nine. And I can just hear those 40 odd ladies going, good, because step 10 is a combination of four and nine. <laughs> Smile, keep coming back. <laughs> I don't think I should go out into the uncharted wilderness without a compass. And step 10 is my compass. And every day is uncharted wilderness. You know, there's been times in the program where it felt like I woke up right in the middle of somebody else's life. And it wasn't one that I would have wanted And it's amazing how your entire world can change in the blink of an eye. And that's really the way it's been for me the last couple of years. Um, Found out my wife had stage four cancer. My dad crashed into Alzheimer's. My sister has lymphoma. And I'm trying to stand there strong and and brave. Um, And it takes a toll. But if I use that compass, I'm able to navigate out of that uncharted wilderness. But only if I look at that compass more than once every six months. You know, I really got to do it every day. So step 11, by the time I made it to step 11, strange things were really happening. I was sitting in the meetings, and I heard myself say, I saw the most beautiful sunset today. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't believe that one. And I was talking about gratitude lists, and I was saying my glass is half full. And two really, really strange things happened at that time. Um, One was when I was trying to improve my conscious contact. Uh, It was spring. And um, I would go out to my backyard and think and pray and meditate and read. And in my backyard, there was this one beat up old apple tree. And out of this whole tree, there was just one little bitty tiny apple. And I decided to make it my spiritual apple. And so I'd say to it, hang in there, man, we're going to keep growing. As it went on, you know, I'd go out there every other day and look at it, and it was starting to get a little bit bigger and a little bit healthier, and I'd go, hang in there, man, we're going to keep growing. But it got to, When it got to fall, that apple was just the right size. It was big, it was healthy, it was delicious looking. And I thought, okay, today's the day. I'm going to pick that apple, and I'm going to eat my apple." So I walked out the back door, walked down to the apple tree, raised my hand, looked up, and here's a squirrel eating my apple. (laughs) And I thought, well, what the f- (laughs) What's the message here? And it finally came to me that that really was a spiritual apple. You know, I couldn't hold it, I couldn't own it, I couldn't possess it. But out of all the apples in my life, that's the one I enjoyed the most. And that's the one I remember the best. And I think about that apple a lot. And I think about it when um, there's something that I want that I can't have. And I think about it when uh, there's something I have that I want's taken away. And I thought about that apple when my sponsor died of cancer. I couldn't hold them, I couldn't own them, I couldn't possess them, but my life was so much fuller because of him, and the sadness showed me how important that was. And I swear this is true. When I sat down this morning, I looked under my chair, and this was under my chair. I'm just glad it wasn't a squirrel. <laughs> uh, the second really strange thing that happened was when I was trying to get a better understanding of what God's will was for me. I was a commercial artist for years, and I illustrated um, children's books and educational books. And because it changes in the industry with like computer graphics and typesetting and stuff like that, they just weren't using illustrators that much anymore and I was turning into a starving artist. And that may be cool in Paris, but it's not so hot in the Midwest. (laughs) And I was getting thinner and thinner, and and I was freaked out, and I was panicking, and God, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Will you give me a sign? And all of a sudden, nothing happened. (laughs) So I'm praying, God, I, I don't know what to do. What is your will for me? thinner and thinner. And finally one day I decided to heck with this, I am just going to kick back and relax. So I did, I sat back on my sofa, turned on the TV, and there was this horror movie on. And I love horror movies. And this one was scarier than hell. (laughs) It was about this family who moved into a haunted house with their little daughter. And the spook was tormenting these people. It was just horrible, scary stuff. And there was this one scene where the little girl is sitting at the dining room table, and the parents and some neighbors are in the kitchen, and they start singing Amazing Grace. And the camera cuts back to the kid, and she's coloring in a book. And she's coloring in a book that I illustrated. An amazing grace is swelling on the soundtrack and the kids coloring my book, and I'm thinking, it's a sign! It's a sign! (laughs) And just then, the ghost undoes the bolts on the chandelier and it crashes down on the kid's head. I'm saying, it's not a sign! It's not a sign! (laughs) What the... What is the message here? And finally it came to me. It was God saying... Jim, you can do my will if you go back to school. You can do my will if you remain a commercial artist. You can do my will if you're a teacher, a trash man, or a carpenter. Why don't you choose? And from that moment on, step step 11 has been a lot simpler. I don't think God cares if I pull into a quick trip and get a Snickers bar. I know he doesn't want me to pull into a quick trip and steal a Snickers bar. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a little bit simpler. So, step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all my affairs. I've had a lot of spiritual awakenings, had one this morning. Um, Some of them have really been simple, and some of them have just simply been life-changing. And one of them was that there's a pretty big higher doorknob out there and that he's got a lot better sense of humor than I do. (laughs) I spent all weekend long trying to forget about Sunday at 10 o'clock, And God knows how freaked out I am about this. See, I can't even talk. But every time I'd step outside, the wind would grab my name tag, and I'd get hit in the face with, Jim P. Speaker, Jim P. Speaker. (laughs) Thanks, but he gave me this. Uh, Another spiritual awakening was that um, I have some enormous holes in my spiritual bucket. And that it goes dry real, real quick. And I used to really beat myself up about that. You know, Jim, if you were only more spiritual, Jim, if you only had more faith. But the truth is, you know, what those holes in my spiritual bucket mean is really only this. You know, that I have to go to the well a little bit more often than some people. And I don't mind that because this is the well. It's people I love here, people that love me here. I laugh here. I grow here. I don't mind coming to the well at all. Another spiritual awakening was that the longer I dig a hole, the deeper it gets and the harder it is for me to get out. Another spiritual awakening was I can quit digging whenever I want. Another spiritual awakening was that my communication skills have improved since I came to Al-Anon. And I know this for a fact, because nowadays when I turn to my wife and I say, let's talk, she runs screaming out of the room. <laughs> Just one of the gifts of the program. Oh uh, Carrying the message, that's why I'm here. Even though I hate talking, I hate talking, I hate talking. But I always say yes if I can, for one reason, and that's that if everybody I heard speak said no when they were asked, my head would be back where it was in 1987, and I don't want that at all. My mind is still a bad neighborhood. They have installed a few street lights. (laughs) But I want to get out of there as quick as I can. (laughs) Practicing these principles in all my affairs, that's really what it's like today. Um, I get along with my family now better than I ever have. And we hug each other hello and we hug each other goodbye now. And I love that. Some of my friends have found recovery and some of them have it. Some of them found it and lost it. Some of them found it, lost it, and got it back again. But I love those friends more than I've ever loved them before. And I'm in a relationship now with a woman that is absolutely the best relationship I've ever been in. And 95% of it is because of the person she is. My 5% of the relationship is I'm just not as thin-skinned and boneheaded as I used to be. <laughs> not that she doesn't tick me off, though, sometimes. Like when she busted out laughing when the, denti- when the waitress at Denny's asked me if I was ordering from the senior menu. That's one waitress who doesn't know it, but she should be grateful if there's an Al-Anon program. (laughs) Um, I loved her enough to get married, and we've been married for almost a year, and I've learned a lot in marriage. When we were married about six months, Linda finally told me that I had always been the one in our relationship that had been completely and totally wrong about everything. (laughs) She always makes me say that, and she's not the alcoholic. (laughs) Oh, what is it like today? Um, I do still whine occasionally, as you all know, but nowadays I just do it for recreation. I lapse into pity, self-pity sometimes. Nowadays, I just do it to keep in practice and um, because it feels so good when you stop. What it's like today is I know that when times are bad, my primary job is to not make things worse. And when times are good, that's when my primary job is to not make things worse. And it's just as simple as that for me. When I first came to Alan, it felt like I was the only person out there whose little island of safety was sinking. And I know now that that's something that we have all felt in one way or another, no matter what program we're in. And that little island of safety of mine didn't sink. You know, as a matter of fact, it stretched, and it expanded, and it went across the oceans, and it's on other continents now. And I know on the other side of the world, there's a group of 40-odd ladies of varying ages sitting in the basement of church that don't even speak English, and if there was just one lone guy there, I'd love to be able to tell him. It's okay. Even if you're thinking, great, a program that's going to teach me how to critique sunsets, it's okay. It used to be all about me. And when it's all about me, I feel alone and I feel confused and things just don't plain go so good. When I'm able to turn this over, when I'm able to turn me over, it becomes we. And I'm not alone anymore and I got people to share with and people to share with me. So in closing, Uh, There's just nothing else for me to say or do, you know, other than what those 40-odd ladies did for me all those years. And that's just to say, smile and keep coming back. I love you all, and thank you.